Thank you, Tomo. And it's lovely to be able to preach this morning and especially to be able to close the series that we've been doing over um, a 10-week period. We did uh, five of the messages in March, if you're new here today. Uh, and we are finishing the fifth of the second installment now, which we've done through August and September. And it's based on a book written by a guy called Dr. Michael Cassidy, uh, The Church Jesus Prayed For, where he works through John chapter 17, which is a chapter in the Bible where Jesus prayed a famous prayer. It was a prayer that he prayed the night before he was uh, crucified, and it was his final prayer on behalf of those who would believe in his name, in other words, the church. And uh, Dr. Cassidy pulls out ten marks out of uh, that prayer, which he says Jesus prayed for the church, and rightly so. And so we've been working through those ten marks. We've looked at um, the church being a body of truth. Uh, that, that would be one of the marks of the church. Truth, holiness, joy, protection, mission, prayer, unity, love, and then finally, uh, then power and finally glory this morning. Um, so that's what we're going to turn our attention to, that the church is meant to be a glorious church. And I'd like us to open in prayer, if you would pray with me. Heavenly Father, we come this morning together as the church, Lord, to listen to the preaching of your word, God. And we pray, Lord, that this very morning there would be an illustration, Lord, a demonstration in space and in time of your glory. Lord, we pray that you would be shown this morning, you would be reflected through the preaching of your word and through our fellowship together as brothers and sisters, that you would be reflected as glorious, God, amongst us. And so we pray for the moving of the Holy Spirit. I pray, God, for the ears and hearts of every person in this room, including my own, to be open to the voice of the Spirit and that our eyes would see your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> So I'm just going to read the first two verses of John chapter 17 because these are the, the, relevant, the relevant verses of the prayer that I'd like to focus on this morning. Jesus spoke these words that preceded this, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, now this is his prayer, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. So, as we turn our attention this morning to speak about the church being glorious, we have to ask the question, what is glory? We have to take a step back before we can address the glorious nature of the church. And we have to see what the scriptures say about this word glory. What does glory mean in the biblical sense of the word? And the first thing to say is that only God is essentially glorious. So anything that is glorious actually resides and has its origin in the very being of God. The Macmillan Dictionary of the Bible isn't that fantastic? I always wanted to quote from the Macmillan Dictionary of the Bible when I preach. So, that dictionary defines the word glory 
as, and I, uh, I quote, the majestic brilliance of all God's qualities. The majestic brilliance of all God's qualities. And so when other things are spoken of in Scripture as being glorious, like the church, as an example, or when we, in common everyday language, when we call something glorious that we think is beautiful or whatever, really, by that, it's only meant that they reflect something of who God is, of His being. They reflect some of that majestic brilliance of all God's qualities. So when we see something like a sunset and we say, oh, that's glorious. Actually, what's going on in our hearts is that we are expressing an echo in our souls. An echo of something beyond that, behind it. The glory of God himself, the being of God himself. All of God's majestic brilliance. Reflected in some small way through the sunset. You understand that to the atheist, there cannot be anything glorious. It is just what it is. But to the Christian, we can appreciate why we find things so glorious. Because they remind us, they are an echo in our souls of the glorious God that we serve. Of His being. (laughs) Thank you, Abraham. Um, As Michael Cassidy puts it in his book, The Church Jesus Prayed For, he says, when we say something is is glorious, um, these things are only pointers to the true glory beyond. Indeed, to the one who is altogether glorious and who is indeed the king of glory. This is the God we serve. And so we see that glory is primarily an outward display Of God's inner moral perfections. Because sometimes we can think of the word glory. As some kind of visible thing. Like it's something bright or something beautiful. That we look at. But the Bible speaks of God's glory. More in terms of an outward. A public display. A making known publicly. Of of the perfections of his inner character. Of his being. Of his person. When he somehow makes that known to the world he's created. Who he is. That is then called glory. So God's glory is who he is. Being made known. That's, That's important. God's glory is who he is. Being made known. And perhaps nowhere else in Scripture is that better illustrated than in Exodus chapter 33. There we read a beautiful story of an interaction between the God who created everything and a man named Moses. And the Bible says that God spoke with Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. What an incredibly intimate picture. Moses had been tasked with bringing the children of Israel out of slavery in Egypt and then to take them across the wilderness and enter the promised land. So he was the man God had anointed to lead the children of Israel. And God began revealing himself to the children of Israel through Moses as a mediator. And at one point in the journey, there's some relational problems 
Because the children of Israel are disobedient. And God's anger is kindled. And Moses goes up the mountain, or not up the mountain, he goes to the, into the presence of God. And he begs God to not leave them. He says, please, you know, if your presence doesn't go with us, then I don't even want to go. And I hope you feel that way about every single area of your life. I hope you feel that way about the office on a Monday morning. God, if you don't go with me, I don't want to go. God wants to be in everything you do. So Moses says, I don't want to go if you, don't want to go, if, if you won't go with us. And God then assures him, he says, I'll send my angel before you. My presence will go with you. And in, included in that promise is, is, is a promise of protection. Because here they are, they've they're got women and children, they're marching through um, enemy territory. They, they don't have you know, a city with walls to defend them. And God says, don't worry, I will be with you, I'll protect you and I'll guide you. But the fascinating thing is you read through Exodus 33 and 34. When God assures Moses of his presence, Moses is, is strangely unsatisfied with that. He finds his heart unsatisfied with the mere promise of, of, of the blessings of God on the earth. The bless me club. You, you protect us, you go with us, you show us the way. Okay, great, that's what we need in life. But Moses finds himself unsatisfied with that. And I find it so sad when people are satisfied with just the blessings of God. When God assures you, okay, I love you, I'll be with you, I will lead you, I'll meet every financial need you have, I will protect you physically, I'll protect you emotionally in your relationships, and, and then somehow we get satisfied with that, without wanting to dive into the very depths of the being of God and just delighting ourselves in Him, of who He is. This is the fundamental problem with the prosperity gospel. Because it is a heart that only wants the blessings of God and is not interested in unselfishly turning your back to the world and all of the pleasures of the world and just delighting yourself in who God is. Do you know that your heart can be satisfied with the being of God? You know that? John Piper has been trying to convince people of that for 40 years. Desiring God. Augustine said, Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And this is where Moses finds himself. He, he's unsatisfied with the, the bless me club. And he, and he then says to, to God, God, show me your glory. Show me your glory. His back is now turned to the world. And everything that we would want in this world, his back turned to all of that. That's already been promised to him. Now he just wants to dive into the majestic brilliance of all God's qualities. God, show me your glory. And God's answer to Moses is fascinating. If you see how God answers Moses' request. He says, I will make all my goodness, my goodness, pass before you. 
anything glorious in this life, when we say something is glorious, or even when the scriptures call other things glorious like the church, it is only because they are a reflection of the goodness of God. That God is good. I hope that in your life, somehow that message has got into your heart. That God is exceedingly good. He is a good God. And God says to Moses, I will show you my glory. How will I do it? I will let my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. God's sovereignty immediately displayed as part of his goodness. And then God hides Moses in a concealed place in the cleft of a rock so that his eyes cannot look on the very being of God. He hides him and then he passes before him and he declares his character. Just notice that. He shows Moses his glory by declaring his character. By declaring who he is. And this is the declaration, the Lord, this is the voice Moses hears, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third and fourth generation of those that hate him. And so God declares to Moses his mercy, his grace, his graciousness, his grace, his patience, his slowness to anger. He declares that he forgives iniquity. He forgives. If you will come to him, he will forgive. He forgives transgression. He forgives sin. He's a merciful God. But he also declares his justice and his judgment and his righteousness. God displays his being, his character to Moses. And he says to Moses, Moses, this is my glory. This is the glory of God, the making known of his moral character in all its perfection. Now the Bible says that there are many things in this world that reflect that glory, that being, that moral perfection and all its brilliance of God. Many things in this life do reflect that. The Bible says that creation reflects it. The heavens declare the glory of God, says the psalmist. And the sky above proclaims His handiwork. And then in Romans chapter 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul picks up that argument and he he speaks about how the very divinity of God is displayed in the things that have been made. That His eternal power and His divine essence, that He is God and He is eternally, immeasurably powerful, that that is displayed in creation. And Paul, based on that, says... That no human being will have any excuse to reject God. Because in our hearts we know there's a God. There's no such thing as an honest atheist. 
Then secondly, the bodies and souls of men are said to display the glory of God, the things that have been made. That includes our own bodies. The intricacies of the human body, the, the human eye, the ear, the nervous system, the social fabric of, of human existence, all of these things declare and reflect the being of God, the goodness of God. But not only the bodies of men, but the souls of, of men and women. The Bible says that the righteousness of God is written on the human heart. We have a conscience, every one of us. We have a built-in moral monitor, a, a knowledge of what is right and wrong. And Paul even says in Romans chapter 1 that we know the righteous judgment of God. We know that God is righteous and that He will judge our sin. That's what our conscience tells us. The glory of God manifest, made known, the righteousness and justice of God made known in the human heart. We can't escape the knowledge of God. And then the nation of Israel reflects the glory of God. The history of the Jewish people is an object lesson in space and time of the person and nature of God. In the Jewish people, we see that God is, for example, patient with a stiff-necked people that rejected him generation after generation, and yet he's slow to anger. We see that demonstrated in history itself with Israel. We see that God is a covenant-keeping God. He is faithful to his promises. Many other aspects of God's personality are demonstrated through Israel, and, and we read about that primarily in the Old Testament. And then, of course, in Scripture, Scripture itself reveals God, it reveals who God is. The words of the Bible, which are penned by the Holy Spirit. This book is unlike any other book. It is inerrant, infallible, written by the Spirit of God Himself as He moved men called apostles and prophets to pen the words He wanted them to. To write, And in the words of Scripture, God makes Himself known to human beings. What a glorious thing. Uh, I would encourage you, the next time you sit down to have a quiet time to read your Bible, as you open up the Scriptures, why don't you just pray that prayer that Moses prayed? Turn your back on the world and all of the bless me club attitude. Open the Scriptures and, and say, God, just show me your glory. And then, of course, God's glory is shown supremely to us in Jesus Christ Himself. He is the express image of God. So Jesus says to Philip in that last hour of his life when he's teaching his disciples in the upper room, he says to Philip, Philip, how can you say to me, show us the Father? Because Philip had said, show us the Father like Moses. Show us the Father and we'll be satisfied with that. But now there's a new response. It's not like the response to Moses. Now Jesus has a, has a different response. He says, Philip, how can you say, show us the Father? Don't you know if you've seen me, you've seen the Father? Jesus is the express image and revelation of who God is to Humankind. No one has seen God at any time. 
the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has made Him known. The Greek word there, John chapter 1, is exegeted. The, the Son has exegeted the Father. He's brought Him out. He has uncovered and explained and revealed the Father to us. You want to know what God is like? Just go and read the Gospels. Read what Jesus was like. That is what God is like. And then finally, God's glory, this majestic brilliance of all God's qualities, is made known through the church. And this, of course, is the subject to which we turn ourselves this morning. And we must ask the question then, how does God use the church as like a canvas upon which to paint an image of himself so that a world looking on will know what he is like? How does God reflect his glory through the church so that the world will come and bow down to him? Paul tells us in his letter to the Ephesians, this is Ephesians chapter 5, he says, Christ loved the church and he gave himself for her. Why? Why did Christ give himself for the church? That he might present her to himself a glorious church. Not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. But that she should be holy and without blemish. And so how is it that we as individual Christians, because the church is made up of individuals, and we as a corporate body, even as a local church, as Church on Main, how is it that we live up to that high calling of Christ Jesus to make known, to reflect the glory of God to, a world, to the onlooking world? And I don't know about you, but when I think about that as, as, a, as a job description for me as a Christian as, and us as a church, I feel most unworthy of it. That my life and my relationship with you in the church as brothers and sisters in Christ is meant to somehow reflect the goodness of God to the world. I mean, it just seems incredible that we would get tossed with that. But that is why He has given us the Holy Spirit. The Spirit Himself works in us and works in the body that we might be changed from glory to glory and be made mirrors of reflection to the world for who God is. It's an amazing thing. What a privilege. Now when we ask how do we do that, obviously this whole series the church Jesus prayed for has been an answer to that question. When the, the more that we pray for and the more that we become a church of truth and of holiness and of prayer and of joy and of the other nine marks we've been through, the more that we do that, the more that we express those things, the more we reflect the goodness and glory of God to an onlooking world. That's why this series has been so important. But I believe that there is, is one particular way in which I think Jesus refers to in the first two verses that we read earlier, John chapter 17, in which we can most powerfully reflect the glory of God to the world. One special way by which we can make known the magnificence of our God to the world. In all of His moral perfection, 
And I want to read those first two verses again with you as we make the transition now into speaking about this one way in which we best reflect the glory of God. Jesus spoke these words. He lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. What hour? The hour for the cross. The hour upon which he would go to the cross and he would take the sin and iniquity of all those whom the Father had given him. He would take it upon himself and he would be crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that would bring us peace with God, because God is a God of justice and sin must be punished. Well, that punishment that we have deserved was laid upon Jesus. And that punishment which brought us peace was put on Him on the cross. That was the hour that was coming. He says, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you, as you have given Him authority over all flesh, that He should give eternal life to as many as you have given Him. Surely the Father and the Son are most glorified at the cross, where they they gave eternal life. To the elect. That's where the glory of God shines brightest. It's where we see the excellence of God's moral character and all of his perfections and all his goodness demonstrated and displayed to the world. There we see the mercy of God. There we see the kindness of God, the love of God. There we see the holiness of God and the righteous judgment of God. At the cross there we see the goodness of God. And I'll tell you this, when the church stops preaching the cross, the church stops being glorious. That's happened in many mainline denominations of our generation. Stop preaching the cross. And so instead of continuing this morning with a a theological discussion, which is important, doctrine is important. I've spent the first 25 minutes this morning trying to define biblically what glory is. It is the public making known, the public display by God of God's moral perfections. And I've tried to talk about how as a church we ought to do that. And that the place where we most clearly and most powerfully do that is by pointing to the cross. Doctrine is important. But instead of carrying on with a doctrinal discussion, what I want to do with you for the remaining minutes that we have is I want to just tell you a little bit of my own story. Because as a Christian, that's the best thing that I have. It's the best way I can... Show you the glory of my God as I can show you how He met me at the cross. I grew up in a, in a very unhappy home. My father was an alcoholic and my mother was a miserable, emotionally beaten down woman. She didn't have the strength or the conviction to leave my father. 
because she just had this, this blockage in her mind that she didn't want her two sons coming from a broken home. Meanwhile, the, the home was, was broken, if you could even call it a home. My, my father had no relationship with my brother or, or I. He was living in the house, but was never in the house. He, his god was the golf club and alcohol. He was a slave of sin. And I don't say that to, to, to bring any dishonor to my father. When I got saved, one of the first things that the Lord told me to do was write a letter to my father and tell him that I forgave him. And that I loved him. I was 23 when I wrote that letter and the weight of, of the hurt of my childhood lifted off me when I did that. I got no bitterness toward my dad. I love my dad. And I pray for my dad. We'd never said those words in 23 years. I'd never said I love you. I'd never heard I love you. You know, they did a study of um, damaging home lives. And one of the things that they discovered is that in some homes you will have a no father figure. And in some homes you will have a father figure who lives in the home but is, is emotionally disconnected from the home. And they discovered that it is far more damaging to grow up in a home where a parent is physically present but emotionally they are not present. Because every day of your life you, you, you live in this home and you feel rejected by the person who is there. That's the kind of home I grew up in. My brother, who's older than me, two years older than me, he was as unhappy as the rest of us were. And he, he, he got a tremendous level of anger in him as a young man. And he hated me. He hated me for our entire childhood. And he bullied me quite badly as a kid. Obviously, when you're growing up as, as boys, uh, an older brother is always going to be bigger than a younger brother. And I couldn't defend myself against that. And so I grew up in this home that was uh, incredibly miserable. There was never any laughter or happiness. I was being bullied by my brother. And, um, you know, the name of the game was, was just fend for yourself and survive. It was not a religious home. I guess you probably have um, assumed that. But somehow, when I was a, a young boy, I, I, I don't know how I got this in me, but I, I had an inclination to faith. Somehow it got into me that there, there is a God. And that somehow I can know Him. And so I can only explain that by the grace of God in me. But I knew as a boy that there was a God. And even throughout my childhood I, I would, I would uh, want to go to church. I remember having a little prayer that I'd written out. And my mom, bless her heart, she would sit with me on the end of the bed and she'd pray that prayer with me if I wanted to pray it. Even though she did not accept the God of the Bible. And when I was a, a teenager, I remember even getting on my bike as a teenager and riding down to the local Anglican church there at, in Rondebosch St. Thomas's and attending the services there on my own. A very strange thing. Um, and then at the age of 16, and I guess this is the story with many young men, women, I, I went off the rails. I was trying my best to live this kind of pious life in this miserable house and um, for one reason or another, 
um, temptation, peer pressure. All my mates had started drinking at that time. And one night I just cracked under the pressure and I got drunk. And I can tell you, it was the most fantastic experience I'd ever had. Because I, I grew up with kind of this social dysfunction. Because you grow up in a house where you never have any conversation. Never had a meal around a dinner table. You know, you don't know how to relate to people. And I was socially very awkward. And um, even some of you now, if you come and chat to me afterwards, you'll think after the discussion, gee, this guy's got some social <laughs> problems. <you know? laughs> um, but when I got drunk, it's like all this, this liberty and this boldness and this like this social confidence just overcame me. And it, I loved it. It was like a drug. It was like I couldn't get enough of it. And that hook was put in me from the first time I got drunk, the hook got in me. And I started to drink more and more and more and more. And between the age of 16 and 23, I progressively became an alcoholic. And I wouldn't say I was a, a chemically dependent alcoholic, but I was certainly a socially dependent alcoholic. I couldn't function in social environments without getting drunk. And my group of friends were equally dysfunctional, so we would just feed it in each other. Um, the truth of the matter was that during that time, my heart was actually broken, but I didn't even know it. I, I grew up with this incredibly strong, independent spirit. My parents never took interest and involvement in my life. They didn't know what was going on in my life. And I think, I, because I partly just shut them out. I played... Um, High-level sport at school. That was the thing that was most important to me as a young man was my sport. Um, and it, it just kind of broke my heart that my, my folks were never at a game. They never watched me, you know, excel. I played SS schools hockey in my matric year. Blah, 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 blah. I never remember my dad watching one game. And only now when I look back do I realize that that broke my heart. I was so brash and I was, I was so confident on the outside that I didn't need that. Don't get involved in my life. I will sort my own life out. I remember in matric I had this pair of grasshopper shoes that I tied together with, like I drilled a hole through them because the, the thing was, you know, a shoe talks like that. And so I drilled a hole through it and I tied it up with an old piece of leather. And it's not that my mom wouldn't have bought me a pair of shoes if I'd asked her, but that was the way I was. I'll sort my own shoes out, thank you very much. I don't need you. My, you know, my parents don't know if I ever did any work, which I didn't do any work. I got a miserable matric because I never did any work. I, I literally fended for myself in this house. But only when I look back do I realize that that was the sign of a broken heart. It's so easy to square your shoulders to the world and say, I don't need anyone. It's not true. Every human being needs to be loved. And I tell you, the love of a father is so important in the life of a son. And it, it crippled me, it broke me. And then as I, as I was going through this period of rebellion and drunkenness and everything that came along with that, alcohol became... A defining factor in my life. Everyone knew me as a guy who was reckless and wild and drunken and 
I, you know, I would go to jail every time I went out because, not prison like Polesburg, just, you know, chucky for the night. Because I was just out of control. I just couldn't, I was like, I was living in this, this runaway train body that just couldn't be stopped. And in the morning I'd feel guilty about what I did and the kind of life I was living and all the stuff that came along with it. And I wanted to change. I wanted to stop, but I just couldn't. And that sense of urgency began to accelerate into my early 20s, where I realized I am a slave of sin. I can't control this thing. Because then the evening would come, and the sense of conviction that you had that morning dies down. All your friends are wanting to get drunk. What the hell? Let me do it again. I remember being overseas. I was 19 years old. I remember I was coaching sport at a school there. I looked in the mirror one morning, and all I saw in the mirror was an overweight, irresponsible, untrustworthy, miserable excuse for a human being. That's how I saw myself in that mirror that morning. I had absolutely no respect for myself. And that faith that had been me in me as a child had never left. I couldn't look myself in the eyes because I knew what I was doing was wrong. But I could not stop it. I was trapped. In a word, I was lost. And so I did what lost people do. I just kept going round and round in circles. And I began to see that the wages of sin is death. The way we love our lives has a consequence and it began to destroy me. And it was while I was in that negative, meaningless cycle of life that um, God began to move in my life. And I don't know if I could ever thank Him. He, he literally came and fetched me. Well, my life was going on a toilet. And the initial breakthrough came when I was 22 years old. And uh, I was going out with a girl at the time. And we weren't Christians. We were living together. And some friends of hers were, um, were born again Christians. And they invited us away for a weekend in the Drakensberg. And so we thought, well, it's a free weekend, so let's go. So we, we went on this holiday, and that, that few days, my life changed forever. I saw a group of people who were not weird, who were not, you know, criticizable from the outside in. They actually won me over. These people are clean. They're people of joy. They're a lot happier than I am. But something deeper than that happened to me when I looked at them. I knew that they were living an authentic life. And I knew I was a fraud. Because I did believe what they believed. And that's what happened in that final year. From that week away in the Drakensberg. It took 12 months for us to commit our lives to Christ. In that year, we, I, I deeply began to wrestle with God. He was on my case. The hound of heaven, as they say, seeking me out. And we started going to a little Methodist church down in Rosebank. And I don't, I don't even think the, the priest there was born again, looking back. But, you know, it was our way of just, you know, doing our bit. Being, just ticking the religious box. And during that year, there were three things that I had to admit about myself. And I say these were admissions that I had to make because these weren't new discoveries for me. 
I used to read my Bible all the time. I'd, no matter what kind of state I was in when I got home from a big night out, I would open up my little good news Bible and read a paragraph. It was just totally inconsistent. So, three things I had to admit. Number one, I had to admit, there is a God. I had to admit that I, I didn't have a naturalistic worldview. I'd never had a naturalistic worldview, that all of this just evolved out of nothing and just appeared out of nothing. I had to get to a point where I had to say, Stephen, if, if you continue to live like there is no God, you are just being a fool. I mean, you know there's a God. I just actually had to face my own rebellion. There is a God. The second thing I had to admit was that the God that I believed in was not any God. I believed in the God of the Bible. And I had to just square that with myself. Stephen, you don't believe in the God of Islam and the God of Buddhism and the New Age gods and all of the other nonsense. I, do, I had to get to a point where I was willing to submit myself to God on His terms and not create a God for my own comfort. That would excuse my life. That's the second thing I had to admit. During that year, this started to get impressed home to me. Stephen, if you want to come to me, you're going to have to submit to me as I reveal myself to be in the Bible. And I actually did believe that. I also knew enough that the Bible made some very serious claims. I knew that the Bible said... That God is a holy God. That He doesn't stand sin. I knew that His Son was Jesus Christ. I knew that His Son had died on a cross to pay for sin. I knew that His Son had risen from the dead. And I knew that if I were to die, I would go to hell. Now some of you may have a different take on that. That might not be your story. But this is my story. I never had a problem with hell. I knew, in fact, if I were to die in the state I'm living, I'm going to hell. And I remember, as crazy it may sound to you, at points in my rebellion... Stopping just for a moment, looking to heaven and saying, God, please don't let me die now. Because I knew where I was going. I mean, how irrational can you be? So, I had to come out of, of hypocrisy. This is what I had to admit to myself. And thirdly, I had to admit that my little self-governance project, my little... I don't need anyone. I don't trust authority figures. I don't trust male authority figures in particular. No one will tell me what to do with my life. That whole thing, I had to get to a point where I had to admit to myself, that's not going so well. It's not really working. And I had to admit that I actually desperately did want this God. And this was right in those last few weeks. I remember going to a Franklin Graham crusade at Newlands Cricket Ground and I was so close to responding and saying yes I want to say yes to Jesus today and by the way I'm going to give an opportunity this morning for anybody here who has not said yes to Jesus yes for you to do that this morning I was so close to putting my hand up that day but I was so embarrassed and I was scared of what my girlfriend would think and I think I've gone all religious so I didn't put my hand up we were going to a Peter Pollock breakfast I was dragged out of bed I must have stunk I, I was in a bad shape that morning, but one of the guys who took us to the Drakensberg, he got on my case when we got back, and he dragged me out of bed one morning, dressed me, and took me to this Peter Pollock breakfast. And I remember going to Peter Pollock afterwards, and, you know, getting up close to him, thank you so much this morning, so he must have got here. <laughs> this guy really needs the Lord. But um, 
didn't respond that morning, same fear, what, what's my girlfriend going to think? But increasingly the desire to know God was growing in me. And I was getting to the point where I was actually willing to admit, not only do I know that I need you, God, for forgiveness of sin, but I actually want you. I want you to be my father. I've never had a father. I want someone to show me the way in this life. I want someone to take hold of this incredibly untrustworthy, irresponsible character who could not be trusted with anything. And I want you to change me because I can't change myself. I began to realize that God had so loved the world. That he gave, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. And I began to see that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, like me. That there was hope for me. And on the 28th of June, 1998... Our moment came. And my girlfriend and I, we were at this church and a guy preached the gospel passionately and clearly. And I couldn't say no anymore. I couldn't run anymore. I couldn't suppress the truth that I knew anymore. I had to respond. And I put my hand up that day. It's a funny story. I'll tell you at another time. I was embarrassed by what my girlfriend would think. And then I got caught out because I put my hand up. And as it turned out, my girlfriend she stood up with me and we walked down to the front together and we accepted Christ together. And we moved out that night. We stopped sleeping together. All of the stuff stopped drinking overnight. Massive change in our lives overnight. It was like from darkness to light in an instant. God saved us. That's all I can tell you. He is powerful and he can change your life. I promise you that. And for two years we became friends and we learned to respect each other and we rebuilt our relationship on the rock of Christ and then we got married and I have the most beautiful, wonderful bride. And, and three children that we deeply love and a life in which God has led us. And I can tell you this, my friend, God is a good father. You may nev never have had a father like I didn't. I can tell you this. God is a father to the fatherless. He can come into your life. Even though you can't see him with your eyes. He is a better father than any earthly father. He can teach you courage. It's one of a, a father's roles in the life of a son is to teach your son courage. I was a coward. God has taught me courage. He can do it. He's changed me. I'm not the same person anymore. He is a good father. And some of that comes through discipline. A father disciplines his sons. And I'm glad he does. He does it for our good. He's a good father. Paul says in Corinthians that we with an unveiled face. Not like Moses who put that veil so that the people wouldn't look into his shining face. We with an unveiled face, we behold the glory of God. We can see Him now in the face of Christ. And He says, we are transformed by that glory that we see. We ourselves are transformed into the image of Christ. That's what this good Father does. He makes you become more and more like Jesus. Hallelujah. He will not leave you the way you are.
I want to close with a word to the unconverted here this morning. It may be that you have never received Christ. That you've never had that moment where you have put your hand up and said, Yes, Jesus. Yes to you. Please forgive me of my sin. I turn my life over to you this morning. And I want to give you an opportunity to do that. It may also be that there's something that the Spirit of God has done in your heart this morning about a certain practice or a certain sin or a certain ill discipline that is in your life that you have felt God speaking to you about this morning that you have to turn away from, that you have to stop doing. God is a gracious God. It's not too late for you. I don't care how many times you've stumbled into that sin and stood up and stumbled. and stu- You can stand up again this morning and He will receive you. If your heart is clean when you come to Him and say, God, please forgive me. Give me strength again. If you're in one of those two camps, you want to say yes to Jesus or recommit your life to Jesus, could I ask you to just be very brave? This is a, this is a comfortable place. This is a family. It's a good place for you to come home. Would you just raise your hand? I want to pray with you. 